she looked at me and she said, Joe, do you know what? It's not about you. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean it's not about me? It is about me. Of course it's about me. She said, it's not about you. It's about doing this for all the women at Google. And I went, oh, okay, that's different. You're right. If I don't send a signal to the organization, even if I don't get it, then we're just writing ourselves off and it'd just be another guy that gets the role. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. Today, I'm speaking to Joanna Flint. Joe is Global Chief Commercial Officer at Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group. Before joining Mandarin Oriental, Joe spent 12 years at Google. Her last role here was as Managing Director of Singapore. And you'll hear her talk a little about her journey to landing the top Google job. Joe is, like me, originally from the UK. And now Joe, also like me, lives in Singapore. I think she's absolutely brilliant. Here is our conversation. Okay, Joe. before you and I spoke, and I realized just how fabulous you are, what I had to go on was your LinkedIn profile. And obviously, you shouldn't judge people on paper, but I looked at it and I thought, oh, University of Oxford, all these amazing jobs, big brands. And I thought, Joe is someone who has sailed through life just being brilliant. Is this perception right? Um, no. You paused, yes. No, I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, I just uh, run at life, I think, with a energy and a belief and a, some level of fearlessness, although we'll talk about vulnerability later. But I think, uh, you know, I just sort of throw myself and, you know, time is precious. And I think I probably realized that from quite a young age and being one of those people that just goes for it. And actually, the Oxford story is quite an interesting one because... I actually was meant to apply to Oxford and I actually pulled out the 11th hour because I got cold feet. So that would be my first imposter syndrome moment at 16. Mm. But it's always something I wanted to do. So I did a master's there a few years ago. It was there, but I actually did my first degree in politics and philosophy at Manchester. So took a different path, but got there in the end. So resilient is what I would say I was. And that's probably the theme throughout. But uh, work hard. I think that's the crux of it, really working hard. If you don't work hard, I've always kind of been very meritocratic. If you work hard, you deserve to do well. And if you don't first succeed, try again. I think some of those principles still apply. So yeah, but no, of course I've made some big mistakes, but I've also had some big wins. And I think the earliest, earlier in your career and the earlier in your life, actually, forget career, that you have wins, that gives you muscle memory that enables you to be able to do things later in life. And for me, I was always an all-rounder. I was always a very good athlete, always in every team. I was captain of every sports team. So always naturally team player and what have you. But I think that you learn a lot through that. But I was also played quite competitively tennis as a junior. 
And so learn to fail, but also learn discipline and learn just to get on with it. So I think I'd say work hard is why I've got to where I am versus just sailing through. And and I think that has made me a lot more resilient than than maybe one might expect. Mm, Great attitude. Yeah, my early CV was a bit of a dumpster fire of confusion. I had imposter syndrome just looking at your profile. Don't, don't. There's also a thing called editing. (laughs) It's like, what do you need to know versus what you must know? And I think, I mean, I did a speech recently for a big birthday that I just had and had quite a tough year and it was interesting and I sort of made a comment. And as much as Instagram might tell you otherwise, this has been quite a tough year for me. So my point being, I think we need to be careful to just look under the hood somewhat to get the real story. Such a such a good philosophy. Okay, so your early career, you moved from London to Singapore. Can you tell us about this time? Yeah. So one thing I've always was curious, I wanted to see the world. And I actually was working prior to that. I'd done five years in the airline industry in London. I'd been at British Airways and a role came up in Singapore and I had a personal sort of dream to live and work overseas. I traveled a little bit, but I hadn't traveled much. I traveled around Europe. I traveled through business to Asia, but I really wanted to live in Asia. I was curious with Asia. I found Thailand fascinating. I found Malaysia interesting. I wasn't quite sure about Singapore, but uh, yeah, I came to Singapore. A job came up. They were looking for people with airline experience, which I obviously had, didn't have much experience, but enough to be dangerous. But it, it was very much an opportunity where they were looking overseas to bring in new talent into an airline for sort of three years. And they sort of created a role for me, which was to look at their direct marketing, e-commerce and their commercial business and all their direct sales channels. And so I came in to, to run that. So that brought me to Singapore and that was the best decision I ever made. So I was in my, my mid-20s. It was a, quite an early move to have done that in the career when all my friends were in London and partying and what have you. And I sort of decided I would go off on an adventure. But I've been inspired backpacking. I've met a few people backpacking who had lived overseas as kids. And I just always thought, what an amazing experience to have had. And in my head, I deep down, I also had a little thing. Well, if I ever get married or when I get married, whatever, and I had children, I think it would be a great opportunity for them to have a different perspective on life. You and I actually left London at the same time. I was 25 when I left London to come to Asia. And there was a lot of, oh, you're so brave. Like, Did you get a lot of that? <laughs> I think everybody thought I was, I don't think if people understood what I was trying to do, I, I just, there was a bit of that. But there was mm. also, it was a bit, yeah, I was like, let's go on that adventure. Like everything, I think you've always got to look when you make decisions, what's the worst thing that's going to happen, mm. right? And the worst thing that was going to happen was I didn't like the job. Okay, well, I hadn't burnt my bridges. I knew that there was a lot of opportunities in the market back in the UK. I can always go back. So for me, it was seize the moment. And so that it was a very natural thing. And it's quite interesting actually sitting here now because I've just had some friends to stay recently and they've come out here and they've gone crikey. And they've lived overseas in the past. They actually did languages. So it's not like they haven't, they don't understand an international context, but they've come here and they've just gone, wow, there's so much happening and so much positivity and there's so much. And I saw that then. The difference then was it was being shaped, whereas now it's different. But also, I think at the age of 25 and 26, you're a different person. There's so much you can do. And I thought I can always get back to the predictable bit and do what everyone else is doing. And I think that's probably something that's, that's key here. I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. I was quite comfortable stepping outside of that predictability. I was curious about trying something that – not because – I needed to prove anything to anyone. I was just curious. And I didn't want to live life regretting not trying. And I think that was that too. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. 
But no, honestly, same same as you. It's the best thing I ever did. And I think similar to what you just described, I knew that if I stayed in London, I was on this very predictable path. I was going to stay in London in my 20s, then maybe get married, move to the suburbs. It's just like a sort of very predictable path that, that people take. Um, and I just wanted to try something different. That's right. I know. Mm. You could see it. You could write your own script and it was almost, I want to, you know, you could predict it. It's predictability. Mm. Life is interesting if predictability is, I think, boring. It is, yeah. It just felt a bit, I don't even know, the, I can't find the word, but yeah, I wanted to shake things up essentially and sounds like you did as well. So, Joe, I'm asking everyone who comes on this podcast to share some stories of times where self-doubt got in the way. When you and I initially spoke about this interview a while ago, it was at Google, you mentioned a time where you almost didn't go for the top job. Can you tell us about this story? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good story. I think the first thing is, if I go back to my values, it's always been very meritocratic. So if you work hard, you'll get rewarded or you'll get recognized, which is true at some level. But, you know, as we all know, life is not fair. And smartest people don't always get the best jobs. Things happen for the right and the wrong reasons. And I was sitting in the office one day and I was at a crossroads. I was in this top accounts team. I built this business. I'd been there from day one. Pretty much you could say, had I not been there, this would not have happened. So I was very confident in myself that I delivered outpaced impact for the organization. And I was being recognized. So it wasn't that I wasn't, but I did know what was next. I was in love with Singapore. I thought it was an amazing place. I could see further growth here. I didn't want to leave. And so I was genuinely really excited about staying, but I couldn't see that next step as much as the company was growing. And the managing director role for Singapore came up and I saw it posted and I looked at it and I read the JD and I read it a couple of times. I thought, oh, that's a really nice role. Oh, that's lovely. I'd love to do that one day and just sort of then put it back in the box. I'm sitting at my desk and I get pinged and a friend of mine and she's sort of like, have you seen this sort of capital letters? Have you seen this job? Question mark. And with this link to this role. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course I've seen it. Everyone knows this role's open. And so I respond, yes, I have. And she said, and? And I'm like, and? And she's like, you know, you must go for it. And I responded with her, um, I think the job is already gone. You know, and I just left it at that. She then said, meet me at the micro kitchen. <laughs> so I turn up at the micro kitchen. So we, we looked at each other and she said, look, you really need to go for that job. And I said, look, I'm pretty sure it's gone to this person. I don't see any point. And she said, Joe, you are the most qualified person in this office. And you're certainly the most qualified female in this office to be going for that role. You have to put yourself forward. And I said, but, but no one's tapped me on the shoulder. They know where I am. They know I'm along the corridor. I said, I know everybody in this office. I've been here since the beginning, even before they arrived. I said, They've clearly got someone lined up for it and there's just no point. So I'm here I am talking myself out of this opportunity. And then she looked at me and she said, Joe, do you know what? It's not about you. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean it's not about me? It is about me. Of course it's about me. She said, it's not about you. It's about doing this for all the women at Google. And I went, oh, okay. Okay. That's different. You're right. If I don't send a signal to the organization, even if I don't get it, then we're just writing ourselves off and it'd just be another guy that gets that role. So that really went through my mind. And I said, all right, okay, okay, I'll reach out to the hiring manager and I'll have a quick, you know, see what he thinks. So 
I got back to my desk and I just sat there and I suddenly got a bit nervous. I thought, oh God, I'm now not doing this for myself, I'm doing it for someone else. So anyway, long story, ping the, the hiring manager and then found out. I said, you know this role, can we have a chat? So we go into the room, sit down with him. And I said to him, I said, so, you know, I'm interested in this role. He said, well, why didn't you put yourself forward for it? And he said, it's been posted for three and a half weeks, Joe. We've had a whole load of internal applications, as you'd expect, from all over the world. A lot of great talents come forward. If you were interested for the role, why did you not put yourself forward? And I said, well, you know what? If you thought I could do the role, you'd have just kind of encouraged me to do it. You know, I thought someone would have just said, Joe, hey, put yourself forward. He said, well, why would we do that? We've got a whole list of people that want this role. If you want to signal you want it, you've got to put yourself forward. And I thought, oh, okay. So I said, well, look, let me reflect on it. And then he said to me, look, why don't you speak to the head of the region and get his perspective? And I said, because this is really about career. And I said, and he's your sponsor. And I said, okay, fine. So um, funnily enough, I was hi- flying to Japan, to Tokyo that night. So I flew to Tokyo and I was meeting up with the head of the region. So I pinged him and said, I know we've got a couple of meetings, but would it be possible if we actually had sort of 15 minutes at the end of it all just for a quick career chat? He said, no problem. So that career chat, 15 minutes, ended up being an hour at the very end of a very long day. And he gave me a load of advice. And in the process, I talked to him about career and what was next. And he, one of the things he said to me, well, there's a great role in Singapore that's come up. And I said, oh, which one's that? I said, the managing director role. And I said, ah, <laughs> hasn't that gone? And he said, no, hasn't gone at all. He said, go for it. And I said, really? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I thought, you know, I would have done it earlier. I'd have been tapped and everything. And he looked at me and he said, Joe, you've been tapped. Go for it. So I got on that plane that night, couldn't sleep, had the red eye, went straight into the office the following morning, pinged the hiring manager and said, can I come and see you? He said, well, I know why you're coming to see me. You saw the big boss yesterday. I said, well, I did. He said, listen, there's still a pipeline of, of people, candidates. We need to move really fast. And I said, you know what? I'm in it and I'm in it to win it. I said, I want to put, I may be late to the game, but I'm here to win. And um, I'll give it my best shot. And the rest they say is history. So an interesting uh, twist of events. And if you reflect on that, what was going on here? And I think, honestly, the crux of it was, I was less scared of not getting the job because I was quite, I kind of accepting if you go into a race, you may not win it, right? That was kind of not the issue. I think I was just scared of people laughing at me for applying. I don't know what it was. I think I just almost didn't believe I could do it. Even though I had all of the creds when I read through the experience, I, you know, I had tick, 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 or at least had 80, 90% of what was required. But genuinely, I was scared that the system I felt should have supported me and it should have prompted me or at least encouraged me or made me feel that this was a logical role. Because it was a little bit of a weird move from where I was to this role. It wasn't lo- the most logical in hindsight, I felt the system was, was against me. And what it was for was the individual that put themselves out there, I can do it constantly, two years, do a job, move on to the next role person. Whereas I was far more, you know, let the system help support you. And I was expecting too much of the system rather than look at my role within it. And it had to take someone from the outside looking at me going, what the hell are you doing? Or what the hell are you not doing? Step up, girl, do it for us and send those signals. And as soon as I reframed it in that context, it moved away from my sense or my risk of failure to a joint opportunity for the women. It became a mission. It was a very different mindset. I didn't care whether I didn't get it. I really didn't care. 
I wanted it because I didn't want to look stupid, but I didn't want it if I wasn't the right person. And I was respectful of the process, but I, I was proud that I was doing it then for the team. But the irony of it was I didn't think then once I did the process that I was going to get it. So I felt like I put my best foot forward. I'd done it. But then when I got called up and got told, I, was, I had already written in my head a script of, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> um, you know, it was a great growth learning for me and all this stuff. I'd already, I'd already done my whole preemptive sort of the unacceptance speech or whatever the counter to that is. And I, <laughs> I was thinking through that. So there was a whole defense system going on in, in, behind me in my mind. So when it was congratulations, <laughs> I had to dig a little bit deep. I was just like, I wasn't shocked because I had to appear incredibly confident. Deep down, I was like, oh my God, I got it. I did it. Boom. So I ping this friend and I said, guess what? And she said, what? She said, guess who the next manager director of Singapore is going to be? <laughs> and she said, you did it for us. That's the best thing you've done for everybody here. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, it was a magic moment in, in so many ways. Then the job began. <laughs> yeah, and that's a whole other story, I guess. Indeed. Well, Joe, I mean, it's just such an amazing story. There's a real lesson there, right? That no one's going to offer you things on a platter. You have to push yourself forward in life. Yeah. I, do you know what? I've had this a lot with my kids, actually. And, you know, well, selection for a rugby team, for example. It's like, how do you get selected for the A team or if you're borderline or how do you get selected for the squad or whatever it might be, or the school player, it doesn't matter, or head of house or whatever. I think what's so interesting is this being prepared to ask, being prepared to try. If you don't ask, you don't get. You really don't. Nothing in this world happens. And you asked me at the beginning of this conversation, you know, did you just sail through life? No, I, I had to work really hard and I did have to ask and I had to try. And I think it's by trying, by asking. And trying is thinking, right? Trying, and, uh, the one thing is thinking, but the, the real thing is asking, you know, what if, or can I, or how can I, or what could I, or is it possible I think it's that curiosity. It's not that give me the job, I want this. It's, it's really, it's not that I want. It's about asking and being curious whether you can do it or whether you are a fit or whether you're able or what do I need to do differently in order to be considered. One of my sons, I've got two sons, one's 18, one's 16, and it was recent conversation. And I can't remember exactly what the context was, but I remember the guidance I gave. And, and he was saying, you know, I, I didn't get selected, but I'm going to be put in the whatever, another team or something. And I said, do you know why? And he said, no, I don't. And I said, well, go and ask him. Go up to the coach and ask him. And so he said, oh, no, no, no I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to cause trouble. And I said, just ask him. I said, because by asking shows you care. By asking shows that you want to self-develop. By asking, it shows that you're mature. I said, just ask. So he dropped a note and said, look, I've just been reflecting on training and da, 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 you know, and I'm really committed, obviously, to the team. And you know that, but I just wanted some feedback on what I could do better and I can work on. It absolutely validated everything. He got this lovely feedback and he took that with him and then obviously got the, you know, got selected for the other team and all the rest of it in due course. But it was because of that asking. And I think that for me is the lesson here, which is if you don't ask, you don't get. But, don't, but it's, it's not about getting. It's about progressing. And I think I've got this motto, which is dare to try. And of course, I didn't have that motto when I was 
15 or 17, I can now sit my ivory tower and say that was my motto of life. But I think actually that represents in hindsight what I stand for and what I think. And if you don't try, you'll never know. You will never know. And only by trying do you learn and do you progress and do you move forward. And, and I think that for me is the lesson in life. If we spend our time worrying if we go to Singapore and get on a plane at 25, you might not like the people or the cultural fit might not be right or it might not work out. But you know what? It might. And I think if we spend our lives worrying about what won't happen, then society can't progress. We can't progress. And I think that to me is the reality. And whatever that is, whether it's a football team or a job or a life decision, you know, making those decisions with 70% of the information I'd rather die trying than, than not try at all. Hmm. And I think that's really the crux of the learning. And I think it was the cultural concern I had at, at Google and the way it was meant to be, you know, so pro-development, so all this. The system, I wasn't sure how to deal with the system to reach out and go for it. I just didn't know quite what to do. I still sense that I had such a strong support system and leadership around me that they would have, you know, helped me. And I overestimated that. Mm. So yeah, dare to try. Don't try, you don't get. <laughs> and you certainly don't progress. So much of what you just said, I was thinking, God, that's always bumper sticker worthy. I'm going to type that out and I'm going to stick it on my wall. So many good reminders. It's really logical. And I think that we spend our lives, so much of it, worrying you know, about what's the worst scenario or it won't happen and everything. Whereas if you try, you'd be surprised. Probably one of the things that I realized going back to, and again, childhood, teenagers, 16, 17, I wanted to travel. I took a year off. I had to persuade my parents I wanted to take a year off before I went to university. And I wanted to travel as part of that, but I also wanted to work. I had this real thing that I, I never wanted to be dependent on any. I wanted to be actually fiercely independent. You know, I wanted to be able to do things on my own. I wanted to be self-sufficient. I wanted to have the financial resources not to have to ask for help. Those were things that mattered to me. And also I wanted my family to be proud. You know, I wanted to give back. Maybe that was the Catholic thing. So I'd sort of literally rustled together the money. I mean, literally, because my, my father refused to pay. He said, I'm not funding your travel. And also didn't like the idea I was talking about Asia to travel for at least for a few months. But it was interesting. Again, I, the reason I'm sharing this story is about daring to try was how could I raise two or $3,000 in two or three months? Like at that age, that was a lot to get. And so I hustled. I qualified as a tennis coach. I was doing tennis coaching on Saturday mornings. I was working in a pub. I then had this idea <laughs> that I could set up a party company and I could do big events in London. I mean, don't know where this came from. And I met this guy in London who thought it was a great idea. And the two of us were going to set up these parties. So we set up a party company. And what wow. we did was we organized once a month on a Sunday night when a nightclub would be dead and no one would ever go into it. We'd rent a, rent a nightclub during the holiday season and people were on years off and what have you. I could travel up and 200 people sell 20 friends, sell 10 tickets each. It was pyramid selling. And we were able, charging 10 pounds each, you know, and we paid 300, $400 or whatever it was for the club. <laughs> We'd hire a DJ because we knew somebody anyway. We'd make it black tie because then everyone would pay a little bit more. Mm, it would be an open bar. People would pay as you go. And anyway, cut a long story short, and we give some money to charity. I mean, that was ahead of its game. 
And guess what? People showed up and people came and it worked. And so I did two or three of these. So I was able to then fund my travel and even did that through university. But the point was I was 17 and I just figured it out. And I did have this guy with two of us together complimented each other, but we just figured it out and tried to do it. Strand Promotions was the company. And I remember going to the bank and saying, I need to open a bank account for my business. And they said, what is that? I said, Strand Promotions. And it was a bank that slogan was the listening bank, which was Midland at the time, then bought by HSBC. And I went, you're the listening bank. Come and listen to me. <laughs> saying that. And they were just this, this bank manager looked at me like, who is this person? And they gave me a checkbook. So very sophisticated I was with my bank accounts and my party company and my pyramid selling. But, you know, these are just things you do. And you know what? When they work and you try it, what was the worst thing that happened? 50 people came. Well, that still would have been quite good fun. You know, it was, it was a success. And again, if I hadn't have tried, it'd never have happened. Wow, what a story. <laughs> See, that's not on my CV, not my LinkedIn profile. You should add it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Quick interruption. Just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by Tiger Hall, the knowledge infrastructure for Fortune 500 firms. Just as I am now, for Tiger Hall, I interview global top business executives and industry experts on topics that help employees and organizations drive change and get ahead. If you're an executive driving large transformational change across your organization, we could help you get that done much faster through the power of knowledge sharing in the flow of work. Check us out at tigerhall.com. Has self-doubt and limiting beliefs shown up at many other times for you? Yeah, it has. I think uh, one of the big times was actually... I was presenting at a conference and conferences are amazing because, you know, you just have to stand. Well, they're not amazing. They're, they're moments of truth, aren't they? You've got to stand on a stage and either be on a panel and, you know, sound incredibly astute and have those really thought through, insightful answers, or you're standing on the stage telling a story, which is, was in this case. But it was in China and I was in Beijing and it was just the scale of it. <laughs> so I walked in and it was about two and a half thousand people. And I just thought, I don't speak Mandarin. Of course, I, well, I was never going to speak Mandarin. It wasn't, that wasn't the mandate, but I just, the scale of it, I just went, how am I going to pull this off? I just had self-doubt. I had self-doubt that the, the presentation wasn't going to work. I had self-doubt that they would, everyone would be talking because they weren't listening to me. I, I just... I was going to freeze. I don't know what I was, everything was going through my mind. And I stood at the back of this room, which was probably the worst place to sit because you could see the scale of it at the back more so than you would at the front in a way. But I then sat down and thought, and I sort of was like deep breath, deep breath in, breathe out, you know, deep breath in, out. And I was like calming myself down and just going, okay. And I said, in my head, I went, come on, Joe, you've got this. When you were seven, you'd stand on that stage doing Peter Pan or Shakespeare or whatever it was. <laughs> And you wouldn't care. And you were seven. And here you are, sort of, you know, whatever I was, 31 or whatever. Just get up and do your stuff. And I kind of went, yeah, come on, seven-year-old Joe. Get up there. Get on that stage. And I had to draw on that muscle memory and that sense of, of course you can do it. And, and I had to shift my gear from all of those negative thoughts that were going on to just regroup, get on the stage and just deliver. And, of course, it was fine. And, and as it always is. And that mindset shift 
from expensive or rather reductive to expensive or whatever that shift is, for me, is so important to get that grip. Because if you go into that downward spiral, you're just going to talk yourself out of everything. You're never going to do anything because always a, a what if. But if you turn it on its head and say, well, what if it goes really well? <laughs> what if, you know? And I, and anyway, I had no choice. I had to go on stage because they were micing me up. So it was just like, you know, there, there was, I was at the point of no return anyway. So I had no choice. It was too, I couldn't run away. So get on with it. But that was self-doubt. And I think that's a very common one. But here's the converse to that. Once I'd done it, the self-belief was in the stratosphere, not in an arrogant, overly confident way, but a real sense of even when you're at that self-doubt mode, you can turn it around. It was more of a service recovery sort of thinking in my head. And, and I think that's borne me well as in later when I've been in those similar situations and just gone for it. So no, I think every time you try and 90% of the time you won't fail, and actually it depends what you define as failing for that matter, but assuming you know, 90% of the time you'll come out better and better for trying. And I think that's the thing to kind of put in your mind. I mean, public speaking is, is oh, there's a statistic, like some people would rather die than go on a stage. There's some statistic that's something like that. But I've had a few moments like that where I've sort of been forced on a big stage mm. in front of people and it's been too late to run away. But then afterwards, that feeling of, oh, I did it and I didn't die. You grow every time. You grow every time. And... You know, the interesting thing that, you know, it's a performance, isn't it? There was another conference I was invited to, and I was presenting on a topic that I wasn't confident about. It was a company kind of presentation, and I tried to customize it a little bit. Actually, it was on mobile phones and the growth of mobile phones and in the region, and it was quite dry. But I tried to turn it into something quite funny, and I went out at the weekend and bought a selfie stick, which at the time. <laughs> to try and link the whole, you know, shift and the the whole growth of the selfie stick as a phenomenon. And I took it on the stage as a prop. And I went and did a selfie with this, and this was a long time ago. And I did it with the whole audience, right? We're all gonna do a big selfie at the end of this thing. And it was just, it was playful and engaged the audience in a different way. And I just came away going, that was fun. Mm. It was fun. And I took a pretty dry topic and made it interesting and fun and engaged. And it was a, it was a bit of the graveyard slot as well I've been given, you know, yeah. so that wasn't ideal. But yeah, it was a great moment. So there are all these opportunities and it's how you show up at the end of the day. And it's that personality and, and who you are and what have you. But a uh, little bit of creative license always goes a long way. Has self-doubt ever really stopped yourself doing something big? And you look back now and think, oh God, that was silly. No, I, I actually don't think that I've let self-doubt get to the point where I have regretted not doing something. Hmm. Although I did have a little bit of imposter syndrome in some of the roles over the last, you know, not most recently, but, but historically, when you transitioned into those roles. I think maybe one of the biggest self-doubt questions was, is going to be in the area of people judgment? And making a decision on a person that maybe was the wrong decision and backing somebody and then wanted to back myself because I've made that decision, but then doubting that decision and then questioning myself and therefore my judgment. Because actually self-doubt is linked to, I think, elements of judgment. You're judging whether you should or shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're building up teams, 
you know, intuitively attracting the right talent, retaining the right talent, growing the right talent, all of those elements are really important judgment decisions. And I have made some decisions that I will say I regretted. I've made some really good ones that I don't regret at all, but there are some that I regretted. And that's raised self-doubt for me because it's made me say, how did I get that wrong? The impact of that on me, on the team, on the individual. But I think that's really hard. I take full responsibility for it. And I think that's important too. But that for me has definitely been a reflection. When somebody says, do you, have you ever failed? You know, I think those are things where I failed because, you know, you've lost six months or a year or whatever it might be by hiring the wrong person or putting them in the wrong fit. Mm-hmm. For me, those things I have to reflect on is like, don't make that mistake again. I think it's a much harder decision when it involves other people than actually backing yourself. That's a lot easier because you've only got one stakeholder. Whereas when you're looking at really, who's at stake? It's the individual. Whereas when you're making decisions on behalf of an organization, on behalf of a team, it's the collective, it's the community you're making a decision for. And therefore, that responsibility is much greater. And therefore, the impact on that is greater. And the responsibility and accountability is greater because it's impacting the structure, the people, the individuals. And so, yeah, I think for me that failing, and I will say that is where I would say I failed, I'm very, very reflective now on particularly hiring and how to make sure that I didn't get it wrong. So self-doubt in a slightly different way. Mm. What you're describing there, I think, is self-doubt that makes you a good leader. Look, you have to learn. I mean, in fact, the first question was asked when I went for that managing director job was, when have you failed? And I remember I couldn't answer it. Mm. And I said... I'm not going to make up some, some you know, cheesy answer. But I was just like, I said, I, I don't, I'm not going to say something just to answer the question. I need to reflect on this one. Can I come back to you on this one tomorrow? I literally said that. Yeah. Because I couldn't come up with the answer. I couldn't think of, because I knew what the intent was. It was all about, you have to fail in order to grow. And actually, what he was asking me, I probably hadn't pushed myself. I had pushed myself in different ways, but I've mitigated that risk somehow. And so I couldn't say I've done something and I've actually failed in the way that I felt was worthy of that answer. I didn't have the war stories. I didn't have those wounds Mm -hmm. to be able to give that reference point in that moment. That made me reflect saying, that's why this is the right thing for me to go for this job. And and actually, I think I did make a quip and said, maybe this is my failure to go for this (laughs) job. I think I made a quip like that. But the point there was those war wounds make you who you are. I agree with you. If you don't make those decisions or you don't, I don't, if I walk away defending the decisions I made and not learning from them, yeah, I'm a bad leader. I'm just defending and justifying. And I think humility is really important as a leader. It's not subservience. It's just humility, just reflecting and thinking and what have you. And I would agree it makes you a good leader, but you can't make that mistake again. Learn from it. But I don't think there's a second chance. I think that's one thing. I mean, you have to learn and move on. Mm. You've got to regroup, make a decision, reflect on it, get feedback, understand, and then move forward. But yeah, I think you have to self-actualize, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Joe. so you'd been with Google for 12 years and then decided to move on. What prompted this? I love Google. I still love Google. I think it's an amazing organization. I think it's got incredible people. It had gone from a 30,000 organization when I joined to 160,000. It was a very different company. And I felt that my ability to drive impact, even from where I was, was not as great as it had been at the beginning. 
like anything, a smaller company can have greater impact and it's more visible. And also, I knew if I really wanted to have that level of impact, I'd need to go to head office, which meant moving to the US, which for personal reasons didn't work. So I thought, maybe it's time. So I did explore internally and looked at opportunities. And then I dug deep and reflected on what is it I really wanted. And what drew my attention to what do I really want was a conversation I was having with the then chief people officer for the organization. So pretty senior person who had been a sponsor for me back in my early days. And again, within the system, she was in New York and I got on a call with her. And I said to her, I'm at a crossroads. What should I do You know, next? And she looked at me and she's just it's like, how can I help you? She said, Joe, you've got five minutes with me now. Tell me how I can help you. What do you want me to do? And I was just in this great conversation about I'm at a crossroads and this and that. And I wasn't clear what I wanted next. And she made me question myself, not self-doubt, but you don't get a call with the chief people officer of Google and not have a clear ask. You silly missed opportunity. Mm. And I just said to her, look, I'm really grateful for your time. I need to do some soul searching. Let me come back to you. And I did do that and reflected on, on what is it I really wanted. And I realized that you know, I wanted close proximity to decision-making because I felt that things were becoming more centralized. I wanted to, if possible, stay in Asia, but that wasn't the critical. I knew that might not be, that had to be the one I might concede on. But I really wanted to be in a position where I could have impact globally at scale in white space. And so it was against those opportunities. And then the question was, well, which industry? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't care really. I could work in any industry. If it's an interesting mandate, an interesting brief, an interesting culture, and I believe in it, bring it on. And so that was really the, the mindset. So when a former colleague who then turned headhunter called me and said, hey, Joe, we're looking for an interesting role, a Mandarin Oriental. It's a new role. It's an evolution of the former chief marketing role to chief commercial. It's got all the aspects of commercial, pricing, revenue management, brand, digital, e-commerce sales, partnerships. I was like, crikey, that brings everything I've done all together. How interesting. And it's a change mandate. You know, It needs to, to regroup and rebuild and, and rethink where it wants to go in the future. And I thought that's a really interesting brief. That was the motivation. And this all happened during COVID. So I was sitting where I'm sitting right now, having these conversations with people I'd never met other than online. And very quickly, over two, three weeks, lots of conversations and went, it's time. And again, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Then I had, ah, self-doubt. I was self-questioning. I suddenly was fearful of moving back into the tra travel industry. I suddenly had this self-doubt of this is going backwards. And actually, if I could take a step back and look at the role, as much as I was curious, I thought it could be fun and interesting and I would really enjoy it and could really pull on lots of muscles and bring it all together, I was worried that actually leaving the tech industry would be a really bad move. And so the doubt came in and the self-doubt was the identity. I was moving from being a woman in tech, which was quite a hot thing at the time in STEM and all the rest of it, to suddenly and you know, being invited into all sorts of interesting associations and boards and meetings and all sorts of things, to suddenly being a woman in hospitality. And I thought, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not that person. I remember self-doubt creeping in on this particular one before I accepted the role. And I called up 
the, the headhunter. And I said, look, I don't think I can do this role. I just feel like this is um, it's an identity clash here in terms of what I stand for. I feel like I'm going backwards. I'm struggling with it. I said, can you help me look at, evaluate this in a more balanced way? And she said to me, Joe, I don't look at this at all as a sideways move or just changing industry. I said, you're going from regional role to a global role. You're going from B2B to consumer. I said, this is a global leadership role in consumer. I said, you've just reframed yourself. Mm. And I went, yeah, that's what it is. She's a very good salesperson, this lady. She should be in sales. But I thought, you know, that was a pretty inspirational question or provocation to me that I couldn't see at all until she said it. And I think that was a, a really great opportunity for me in my moment of doubt to have that then play back at me and reframed. And sometimes I think doubt aside is, you know, you need the outside view. What is everyone else seeing? And that helps uh, navigate that. So that's where I am. So Imagine Oriental Chief Commercial Officer. I've been here nearly three years in April next year. And yeah, it's been, it's a journey. So I thought it would be fun to do some quick fire questions. I've landed on some questions that are possibly more semi quick fire. Some of them might require more than a very quick answer. Um, I'm starting off with easier, sillier questions and then getting more profound. Go on then. Do you have a favorite book? Giving Tree. Hmm. Favorite sport? Tennis. Favorite Mandarin Oriental hotel? Oh, Lake Como. Oh. Do you believe in ghosts? No. <laughs> What's the first thing you do on a Friday evening when you close your laptop? Glass of white wine. Oh, lovely. Okay, this is where my questions get a little bit more meaningful. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? If you don't try, you'll never know. Mm. What does success mean to you? Living a life with no regrets. And when all is said and done, and people remember you for the good that you brought to them and the smile that you brought to their lives. Very nice. What is still on your career bucket list? I think I want to move to, I've been in corporations all the way through, probably having more balance portfolio approach to how I use my time. And so my bucket list for me is combining the skills I have and contributing to businesses, to people in different ways. So I think, you know, that if you look at life as learning, earning, and then giving, elements of, of bringing that giving component more into the center of it and having time to, to balance. I'd actually love to contribute to sport with underdeveloped communities more. It's something that, that I think is incredible leveler, an opportunity for people to develop new skills. And I think it's really helped me and my kids in so many ways. And so being able to find a bridge to that would be, would be something I'd love to do. If you could give your 16-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Don't change a thing. Ooh. So what advice would you give to someone just starting out in the workforce today? Focus, being humble and curious. Learn, focus on delivering value. The job is not a title. The job and the relationship we have with an organization is about creating value for it and trying to figure out what is the value that you're creating and is that at its highest level in relation to what the organization needs. And once you know you're delivering your highest purpose or not, then flag that and ask for more. Brilliant advice. Okay, Joe, I've got one last question for you. This is the same wrap-up question I'm asking everyone, is can you nominate someone to come on this podcast? Yes, I'm going to nominate 
and he'll be surprised I've done this because I haven't spoken to him for a very, very long time. But Rob Pierre, who is the global chief executive of an agency called Jellyfish. I don't know Rob well, but I interacted with him when I was at Google. He's since built a business. He built a business from scratch and has grown it, had significant investment and has been acquired by a very large organization. But what I love about Rob is his storytelling, his reference points, his authenticity, and his belief. And I think he's a really interesting individual with a global perspective to talk about how he's built an incredibly successful business through great determination and being a really good man. Oh, he sounds brilliant. I'd love to speak to him. Okay, Joe, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you about this. Thank you, Pippa. Thanks for giving me the opportunity and uh, hope there are some nuggets in there of use to, to somebody who's listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall. 